Welcome to Musician's Life Podcast. This podcast features interviews with a diverse group of musicians in different fields of the music industry, and my intent is that the audience will gain something from each guest's story. This episode features my conversation with Joe Wong. Joe is the host of The Trap Set, one of my all-time favorite podcasts. He is also well-regarded as a drummer and composer. As a composer, he and his composing partner scored the Aziz Ansari show Masters of None, and as a drummer, he's worked with Parts and Labor and Marnie Stern. I sat down with Joe last August at his studio in Los Angeles. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe in the podcast app and leave a review. Also, please consider making a donation to this podcast on our homepage at www.andrewhalljones.com. You'll see a link for A Musician's Life. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please email me at amusiciansLifePodcast at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter, at MusicianLifePod. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. Here's my conversation with Joe Wong. So, Joe Wong, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for taking the time to do it today. Of course. I appreciate it. Happy man. to be here. Thank you. Uh, so, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, your background. So, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Milwaukee, Milwaukee Wisconsin. Milwaukee. Okay. And did your parents, do, was there music in your house? Like, did your parents play music at all? My parents were, like, uh, moderate music fans. Yeah. Uh, but neither of them played music, mm-hmm. and I'm the oldest of five kids, and okay. I'm the only one that really got into playing music. My younger brother is into it as a hobby, but okay, everybody else. So you're the oldest of five. So, uh, so, what kind of music did your parents have like going in the house? Did they have like records or cassettes, or what were they listening yeah, to? Yeah, my. My mom listened to lots of Beatles and mm-hmm. Neil Diamond when I was growing up. Nice. And uh, my dad was into stuff like the Moody Blues and the Eagles. Awesome. Very cool. That kind of thing. Elvis. Yeah. He liked Elvis. Yeah. And so what was your first instrument? Piano. Piano. So when did you start piano? In 1986. I was six. You were six. So you started taking lessons and did you enjoy playing? Yeah, I did. I didn't. I didn't absolutely love it, but I had an aptitude for it, and yeah. I enjoyed it. Okay. So, um, how long did you continue with the piano lessons? About five years. Okay. So that would bring you to about like middle school. Yeah. Age. So at middle school, most you have the option of like potentially playing trumpet or another instrument. Did you choose another instrument at that point? Or? Yeah. Actually, in fourth grade, I added violin. Mm-hmm. Um, we had orchestra. Uh, that began in fourth grade Mm -hmm. and then in fifth grade we had band class and Mm -hmm. I started doing uh, clarinet okay which I've been getting back into recently as you can see behind you oh excellent (laughs) excellent yeah Um, but then at 11 I discovered drums and I actually don't remember why I wanted to play drums I just knew that I wanted to try it okay and that's what really changed everything for me okay so when you discovered the drums at 11 did you like drop the clarinet and the violin and the piano pretty much yeah okay so did you get a kit of drums? Or... Uh, I did when I was 12. Okay. Um, I got a drum set for Christmas. Nice. And uh, what was that? Do you remember what kind of drums they were? Yes. It was a black 
Pearl Export Pro yeah. with some Sabian B8 Pro symbols. Excellent. And it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Yeah, exactly. So were, did you continue to play drums in the band at school? I did, yeah. I was. I, I kind of started uh, with a private teacher mm-hmm. playing pad, but really drum set. Yeah. Um, and that's what really felt like it empowered me. Like it felt like when I could, when I sat behind a drum set, it yeah. felt like I was uh, an adult or it felt like yeah. this is my thing. Yeah. In a way that no other instrument had felt I before. Felt like yeah. Excellent. So what were you listening to at the time, like middle school age? Like- yeah. Okay. Well, uh, sixth grade, I started diving deep into my uncle's record collection Mm -hmm. and he basically had a lot of classic rock from the 60s and 70s so everything from zeppelin to the grateful dead Mm -hmm. you know the kind of standards lots of beatles yeah uh but then by the time i was 12 i started getting into nirvana and Mm -hmm. kind of like the grunge stuff which led me to punk rock okay Uh, and that's kind of where my identity headed okay high school Cool. So, um, yeah. So let's move. So moving into high school, uh, were you still playing in like the concert band or any of the school side of things? Yeah, I did marching band for a couple of years in mm-hmm. high school. Yeah, and I was in jazz band, mm-hmm. uh, which was an it was a like a kind of like a extracurricular, mm-hmm. um, but you had to audition for it. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a great teacher, but the other kids were kind of goofing off a lot and it it didn't really hit me it Uh, didn't strike you it didn't it didn't feel like a vital art form to me um because of the context because it was in school yeah like it didn't feel like i didn't understand how amazing it is sure okay i'm curious about like your interest like you mentioned like you'd become more interested in punk rock and how that related to like the the drum like your lessons you were were you still continuing to take drum lessons uh sporadically sporadically okay um but yeah i mean the thing that i liked about punk rock is the kind of spirit of punk rock yeah. and i think it's a spirit that has threaded through um you know music long before the word punk rock i mm-hmm. mean I, I think of the spirit of bebop to yeah. be similar and it's just basically a particular community creating its own sound and having your own kind of language developing your own language um and kind of breaking from tradition right right so um so in in high school were you did you have a band that you put together were you like playing outside the school yeah i had like a few different rock bands um with kids across town and Mm -hmm. we would play quite a lot we would play all ages venues Mm -hmm. and um we even did some recording. Okay. And then my senior year, I started a band with my best friend and another guy. And we took it a little bit more seriously mm-hmm. and like actually toured uh, during spring break. We went down to Texas and then yeah. um, right after school let out, we did like a whole U.S. tour. Um, so let's talk about that. So you, so you're, you just graduated as a... Was it, you were just graduating college, or high school? Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, how did you go about number like booking the shows back then? I mean, I assume this is like on the basically the beginning of the internet. Was the happening? internet, yeah, we did have a website, but yeah. everything had to be done by phone by at phone, that point, yeah. and none of us had cell phones. Yeah, so I just had a notebook, mm-hmm. 
And I had, um, my, my house had two phone lines, one for the internet, which was dial-up at the time. Yeah. But I also could use that to make calls. Okay. And I would buy, like, AT&T calling cards. Yeah. And then just call people that promoted kind of punk rock or DIY shows around the country and set stuff up. Oh, okay. Um, and my one of the, one of my bandmates helped to do to do that as well. But that was really empowering because, um, you know, that was like one of the the core elements of punk that appealed to me. Like, okay, you can do it yourself. Right. You don't need a booking agent. In fact, booking agents are corny. Like, do it yourself. Yeah. Create your own experience. Right. Yeah. And, and it was great. Yeah. So so that summer you hit the road. Did you have like a van and? Yeah, just we had a van and... that I think. Our bass player bought it for six hundred dollars. Yeah, it, I remember the exhaust system fell out in New Orleans, and we just strapped it up with bass strings and kept <laughs> going. Kept going. That's awesome. um, and it's not like we played any huge shows or anything like yeah. that. We played in basements and in like small clubs yeah. to virtually no one. Lots of the time, yeah. and sometimes we were on a show with a band that was popular and it would be big and fun and crazy. But some of the best shows I played to this day were to almost nobody just because the energy was great. <laughs> it was so great. Yeah. How long was that tour? A couple months? That was like a, that was more like a month or a, a month, few yeah. weeks or something. And then my freshman year of college, yeah. we kept that band going and I stayed in Wisconsin and went to state school. Okay. And, um, yeah, so we, we did a couple more tours. What, what school did you go to in Wisconsin? Uh, the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. And did you have a sense, did you, were you interested in studying music or were you interested in studying something else or? I kind of uh, had a, com a complicated relationship with the concept of studying music because mm -hmm. at the time I felt like maybe academia and art were mutually exclusive. Like mm -hmm. I was, a, I was afraid that uh, if I studied and learned too much about the technical elements of music, it would stifle my creativity. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, I didn't really, you know, I was playing in punk bands and I was playing to nobody. Yeah. And I also, uh, you know, didn't necessarily at that point have ambitions of becoming a professional musician. It was almost like frowned upon in mm -hmm. that community. Mm -hmm. It was more like doing it for the passion of it. Right. So I had a kind of complicated relationship with the notion of making a career in music. Mm. So I was studying um, computer science and English, and I thought, okay, well, I'll just get a backup right. kind of job and sure. do music as my passion. Right. So how long were you at the, the, the University of Milwaukee? Uh, for a year. For a year. And did you continue to play with that same punk band that you were working with? Yeah. And uh, so... And we had a... The other thing that was really great about that year is I had a house uh, that we took over from some other kids and it was kind of a known house for shows. So people from all over the country would call us and ask to play in our basement and we would have these great basement shows where sometimes, you know, a hundred people would show up and right. cram into our basement. Right. And, and some of the bands that played there ended up becoming, you know, largely famous, like, uh, Modest Mouse mm -hmm. played in our basement oh, and, wow. uh, Jimmy Eat World. Yeah. And, and bands that kind of became popular, yeah, you know, five years after that. Sure, so. that's that's cool. So, um, so what was the next step after that first year? Did you? Why didn't you go back to the? Well, I was thinking more about it, and I, I actually did pretty well in my computer courses. But I was like, I don't want to sit behind a computer all day long. Right. You know, I I really love music. Why don't I just try to pursue it? Yeah. 
And so then I looked into going to Berkeley School of Music yeah. because I had some friends that went there and enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what happened. So so the following semester, so like in the fall, you came to Berkeley? Yeah. And um, so what was... Excuse me. What was your your major like? What were you were you, were you studying there? I had a double major, which was uh, music production and engineering, yeah. and then performance. I would have been done in three years because I had a bunch of AP credits from high school, and I had a year um, of college under my belt already. So all of my kind of core classes were taken care of. Yeah, but I ended up staying for two years, and then I left. So. So you're studying MP E um, at Berkeley, and had you been recording on your own, like outside, like before you came, or yes. where, where did that come from? Yeah, I, I had made a couple recordings with bands I'd been in in high school and college, mm-hmm. and uh, my best friend in high school's father owned a recording studio too, mm-hmm. and I was always fascinated by it and yeah. uh, interested in it, and yeah. I'm kind of a tech-minded person and, mm-hmm. and could understand what was going on, and yeah. it seemed like an interesting. Thing yeah. to pursue cool and um so and at school at berkeley you're also you were studying drum set yeah as well um so who were some like who were some teachers that like had a particular influence on you on, on the drums when you're at berkeley i don't know yeah <laughs> i feel like um the problem that i had is that there were too many conflicting opinions and i felt like after a couple years, I had had my fill, and I was oversaturated with uh, cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. <laughs> from everybody. Yeah. Lots of the teachers would kind of talk shit about each other, too. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting, and I kind of appreciated getting all these different perspectives. But I don't think I really connected with anybody in a mentor-type way. Yeah. Um, and not for lack of trying. I just felt like lots of the teachers that I had were kind of there because they were compelled to be there and mm-hmm. they didn't take much of an interest in me right. for whatever reason. Sure. And what about on the, like, the mp side or the composition side? Were there other, were there teachers there that you connected with? Well, the interesting thing is I took, as an elective, I took a film scoring class with a guy named Richard Davis, mm-hmm. not the bass player, but yeah. another Richard Davis. Yeah. And it was really, really interesting. And it, at the time I was like, well, it seems like so competitive and difficult to get into that world it would be fun but it's not something i'm necessarily interested in right um pursuing but then just kind of by accident that's what What ended up happening happening yeah later on so uh so after you left berkeley after two years is that yeah right and so what compelled you you were just what compelled you to not come back i i was feeling like uh frustrated there i felt like i had gotten a lot of information and i needed time to process it and i also felt like there wasn't a utilitarian value to having a music degree aside from if i wanted to go to graduate school or become a teacher Mm -hmm. and i I knew that what i wanted to do at that time was to kind of continue my path of playing in bands and touring and making recordings and they had offered me a scholarship but it wasn't a complete scholarship Mm -hmm. and I just felt like, uh, you know, I've gotten what I need out of this place. Yeah. And now I need to kind of go process it. Sure. So, so where'd you go? What was the next step? I moved to a farm in Northern Wisconsin and just woodshedded. I would practice, you know, 12, 14 hours a day on the drums, on the drums. And then I would also write. Okay. Uh, So, right. Let's talk about that. So 
were you also like you were doing a composite you were working on composition as well at berkeley so not like, i mean i wasn't really oh you weren't really okay no. and so i'm curious about like the harmonic side like your harmonic like developing of like like harmonic and melodic ideas and like music theory and all that stuff because you mentioned a little bit for, in the beginning that you played piano or some like melodic instruments yeah but um is that something you'd always been kind of working on on the side a little bit or it's uh i would have to say that melodic ideas um are easier for me than harmonic ideas mm -hmm. even now um and it's not something that i consciously developed like okay. i didn't i and i kind of even now i don't I try not to think about it too much when I'm writing a melody. I'm not thinking about the intervals or, oh, why don't I try doing retrograde here or whatever? <laughs> yeah. Uh, because I like I like the fact that it's it feels like I'm just like going fishing and pulling something out, right. and it's not even me that's writing it. I'm just right. kind of like accessing it from somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's talk about the. So you go to this farm in is it Wisconsin or yeah. someplace, and. Uh, um, you're shedding drums like all day long like what are you practicing like what are you working on sure i would kind of divide up my day uh and I, and i remember one thing that i was really into at the time was transcribing roy haynes stuff so i was like transcribing now he sings now he sobs mm -hmm. and then i would try to take it and change it and try to do other things with it yeah uh and um i was working on all the stuff that i worked on it at school but didn't have enough time to really develop yeah i feel like at school i was just concentrating on getting the coordination down and regurgitating rather than like internalizing stuff and making it my own yeah um yeah. and i never felt like i had taken that next step and that's yeah. what i was trying to do yeah that's great so how long were you like shedding on that farm i would say about six months and then i got a call from my favorite guitar player at the time who lived in Washington, D.C., and mm -hmm. asked me to join a band with him. So then I moved to D.C. Okay, so, so you moved to D.C. What Did you guys start playing right away? Was he like already established in the scene? or Yeah, like... he was established in the D.C. Uh, kind of rock scene. Mm -hmm. And we started writing songs, but then it turned out that he was in a really bad place at the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he was older than me, and the bass player was older than me by like 10 years. Yeah. And I really respected them, uh, but it didn't work out because they were going through some addiction issues and other personal problems. Yeah. And I wasn't in a place where I knew how to navigate through that either. Like mm -hmm. I was looking to them for some sort of validation and because right. I looked up to them and they were kind of dicks <laughs> at the time. <laughs> right. And they've yeah. kind of made up, made it up to me in, in the intervening yeah, fifteen years or whatever, but right. uh, yeah. So did that? So did that band just not happen? Yeah, I mean, did you move there and then I moved there. Kind of we did out? stuff, and then we played like some shows, and then I was just like, I can't do this. Okay. So I moved back to Wisconsin, and that's kind of where I got started scoring films. Okay. So how did how did that happen? I moved back to Wisconsin, and I was waiting tables and living in my parents' basement, mm -hmm. and I was depressed because. I had just played with somebody that I thought would be the greatest ever. Yeah. And I thought we were going to have the best band and like, and really go for it. And it just didn't work. Didn't happen, yeah. And now here I am with no degree living in my parents' basement. What am I going to do? Mm -hmm. But then I started waiting tables and making more money than 
lots of things I've done in music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, a friend of mine, um, actually three friends of mine were making a film called The Yes Men, mm-hmm. and they needed music for it. And I, I started working with my friend Didier, who's still my partner in composition. Yeah. And I knew him because I was kind of involved in this experimental theater scene in Milwaukee and this kind of underground music scene in Milwaukee. And we met when we, when I was in high school, Mm -hmm. he's a bit older than me. Yeah. Um, And so we hadn't really tried playing music together, but I'd recorded a CD by his band once, like when I came back from school during winter break or something like that. Yeah. But we started working together and it was really easy and we were able to click uh, and it was it was kind of like a surprise. Yeah, I, I wasn't expecting that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did music for this film, The Yes Men, and then uh, I think it went to Sundance in Toronto, and then it sold to MGM. Wow. And I was waiting tables, and the theater like right near the restaurant where mm-hmm. I was working started showing the movie. Like, and I was like, okay, well maybe I can pursue this. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of made a decision to kind of try to pursue composition. Cool, cool. Now let me ask you: In that film, was the music like, uh, was it like songs, or was it like incidental music, or was yeah? It I mean, like... it was kind of used as incidental music, uh-huh. uh huh, as score. But uh-huh. we didn't really know what we were doing. Like, we didn't know how to score to picture at the time. And actually, if we would have scored to picture, it probably wouldn't have worked as well. Like, yeah. Uh, but it was kind of like they had temped in a bunch of music, and they're like, "Can you guys do something in the spirit of this?" Mm-hmm. So it was kind of influenced by people like Prez Prado during his kind of uh, more of his like wild era. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was really fun. Uh, so we did it all in a basement. Yeah. You know, with like minimal equipment and in Wisconsin. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it just kind of worked. So, so that was like your first idea, like this could work on the comp, like this is something worth pursuing on the composition. Well then after that, I mean, we, that movie, it got a theatrical release. It, it, got pulled really fast it didn't really make any money in the theaters yeah. but then it, it went on to get released on dvd and streaming later when that appeared right and then you know it got played at major festivals and it kind of was like a foothold that we hadn't even really tried for you mm-hmm. know it was like okay this is an opportunity why not see if it leads somewhere yeah so so what was the next step after you got that kind of realization well the director of that film went on to become a really successful director of TV commercials. Okay. And, uh, you know, we weren't able to make much money from the movie. I think I got paid like $400 or something like that. Right. Um, but then he, he advocated for us when he was directing these big commercials. So mm-hmm. I, I can remember the very first commercial that we scored was for Snapple. Mm-hmm. And all it was was like a two-second harp glissando or something like that yeah and then it was like a clip from another song that my partner had written that we kind of Mm re-recorded and it took us like an hour and a half and and we're still in the basement and then we got on the phone with the ad agency and they're like well is 30 okay and i was like 30 what like 30,000 for the spot and we were like uh yeah (laughs) it just seemed so ridiculous yeah and i also had some sort of internal conflicts about it because you know i especially at that point people weren't clamoring to license their music to ads and i was like okay is this selling out or whatever but 
the way that it worked in practice is that indie films, especially ones that were interesting to us or ones that we got asked to do, uh, didn't have money for music. So we were able to do these large scale commercial jobs mm-hmm. and make money. And then that enabled us to uh, not only kind of develop our craft and learn how to work under a tight deadline and, you know, work in lots of different styles, but it also financially gave us the cushion so that we could take on projects that were interesting. Right. Cool. So when did you <coughs> move out of Milwaukee or out of Wisconsin with, with the film thing? What was the next step? Well, I, what happened next is during this, th- during this stage, I was playing a lot of jazz in Milwaukee, playing with guys, um, like I was playing with this guy who had spent 30 years in New York and mm-hmm. had moved back and he'd played with people like Arthur Taylor and Lionel Hampton and great, great drummers and yeah. percussionists. And yeah. he was kind of mentoring me. He was kind of fucked up too, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> yeah. He had addiction problems too. Um, but I learned a lot f- from working with him. Um, and then I kind of decided to, to start playing um, in rock bands again. Okay. Just because I feel like that's the overall format where I can express myself. Yourself, yeah. Uh, in jazz, I feel, I always kind of feel like an outsider. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's my second language, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so I don't feel like I'm in a position to make a relevant statement in that, in that art form right sure. now. Okay. Yeah. So I started playing in uh, rock bands and touring again and then eventually I got into a band that was based in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and I didn't ever really move to Brooklyn full time I was kind of going there for weeks or months and then touring with that band mm-hmm. and that's that's when I first started kind of touring internationally going to okay. Europe and Japan yeah. and stuff like that and what was that band was that, that band was called Parts and Labor okay and they had been a band for about five years before I joined mm-hmm and I was on tour with another band, and my friend, um, the same guy I was in a band with in high school, called me and said, hey, there's this cool band in New York that's looking for a drummer, maybe you should try out. Yeah. And I happened to be passing through New York, so I said, oh, I've never really tried out for a band. Right. This would be fun. Yeah. And so I emailed them, and they sent me some of their songs, which I kind of, I also looked at it as an as an experiment to learn other people's songs, but I didn't have access to drums because I was in a van in a touring band, yeah. so I was like charting it and trying to memorize it by air drumming it and mm-hmm. then I went and auditioned having never really played, played it on, on a drum regular set, yeah. drum set yeah uh, but then I got into that band and that was a great experience I'm mm-hmm. still really good friends with those guys cool that lasted about five years and during that time were you still doing some film stuff on yeah, yeah I mean that was still the film stuff is still what was kind of the composing stuff is still what was kind of paying most of my bills at that mm-hmm. time I also taught. Uh, I taught for a few years in my early twenties uh, mm-hmm. as well. Uh, okay. And now I'm teaching again. Cool. Um, but yeah, that kind of helped pad it. Like when I decided I'm going to quit my job as a waiter. Right. The reason I could do that is because I knew I was making X amount as a teacher, and then I was also trying to build my right. career as a composer. Sure. Gotcha. So, did you ever actually move to New York? No, not, not really. really. I mean, I guess I I had a sublet there. So okay. I did have a place there at one point, 
and then most of the time I was just getting house sitting or right. staying with crashing on the floor of my friend my bandmates place or right. whatever I needed to do but the band would the way that we functioned is we would um, rehearse in New York and then we recorded in Wisconsin actually like they would come to Wisconsin because I knew studios where we could get a good deal mm-hmm. and then they would they would come to Wisconsin. We would record record there, and then we toured a lot. So okay. I didn't want to deal with getting a place in New York. Plus, I like my most most of my money was coming from this business that we had started scoring movies, and that was based in Wisconsin. Wisconsin, right? Um, so so when did you make the move to LA? Was that kind of the next step? For yeah, you? A- after Parts and Labor decided we wanted to break up. Um, I felt like it was time to make a move. Mm-hmm. And so I came out here uh, with the intention of really kind of focusing on uh, scoring and hustling, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, meeting people and trying to take uh, what we had done and grow it. Yeah. So um, can you talk, did you have, when you moved out here, did you did your partner move out here, your business no. partner? No. Okay. So you moved out here on your own. Yeah. And I assume from like your experience touring, you had like, you probably had a couple connections out here, a couple people you could call or. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the people that I met out here um, when I was on tour is a music supervisor at NBC. And, okay. and like that led to one of our biggest jobs ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I had friends from New York that had moved out here and friends from Wisconsin that had moved out here. But what I did is I just went on Facebook and said, hey, if anybody has friends that I should meet in Los Angeles, let me know. And it, I wasn't even doing that with the aim of like networking right. in a businessy way. I, I just, I had read somewhere that it takes two years to get established in a right. place, and I didn't want to wait two years to f- to feel established. Right. So I ended up having a like a spreadsheet of over a hundred, close to two hundred names of people mm-hmm. that I should contact, and I went out with everybody that was a friend of a friend, mm. and yeah. so I met some really great friends that way. Oh, that's great. Can you talk a little bit about like the process of getting like making connections within like the music and advertising? Basically, it's all about having a good personal relationship with people that are creating television shows or movies. Right. That's that's what I've found. And okay. so the times when I go out and try to have kind of business meetings or general meetings with people aren't as productive as just people that I happen to meet in regular life. Yeah. So I think the key is to surround yourself with people that you get along with and that you're interested in and to push yourself to go out and do things so that you meet as many people as possible mm-hmm. and that's the primary benefit is that you get to have great friends and the secondary benefit is that you know out here lots of people that you come into contact with are involved in the entertainment business and so right. that leads to things right right so yeah i mean anytime that i've tried to like hustle in a businessy kind of way mm-hmm. uh it hasn't worked so i've kind of learned to just try to be myself and meet people in a regular way. Mm, that's, <laughs> and, that's good advice. But, but I, on the other hand, you know, I did like push myself right. to meet lots of people. Sure. But it's not like, okay, well maybe this person can help me. Right. It never works that way. It right, always, right. It, somebody will just call you out of the blue and be like, hey, I was talking to so-and-so and they're looking for music. Do you want to throw your hat in the ring? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I like so it sounds it kind of sounds like they're like both things happening. It's like you're saying like you've got to be yourself and you just got to be true to like what you're doing. And on the other hand, it's like you've got to like, you know, meet some people, like just yeah. meet new people and see what comes. Yeah. You have to put yourself out there, but by putting yourself out there, you have to put yourself out there, not right. like some invented version, version of, yourself. of yourself. Right, exactly. Uh Yeah, and I think this also comes from speaking with folks that are a lot more successful than I am at, at yeah. doing this. Uh, like one of the guys that kind of mentored me when I came out here is a guy named Mike Post and he's kind of the top television composer of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met him through this weird... See, again, I met him through this really weird set of circumstances. Yeah. I was back in Wisconsin before I moved to Los Angeles. Yeah. Like a couple years before I moved here. Because my dad had gotten really sick and he was in the intensive care unit at the hospital and one of his friends from Hawaii wanted to come visit him and it turns out the reason his friend from Hawaii was in Milwaukee is because he had a friend that owned uh, like a Gulfstream jet and they were going around golfing in different cities and his friend turned out to be this guy Mike Post who is kind of the king of television theme songs and mm-hmm. incidental music and score and I was uh, I was like acutely aware of Mike's work because only a couple of weeks before that uh, I had been asked to kind of rearrange one of his theme songs for a show that they were trying to reboot. Okay. So he had done the original theme song in the 70s and they wanted to, they made a pilot to try to make a modern version right. of it, which had never ended up going anywhere. But right. it was just this weird kind of like synchronicity thing. Right, yeah. And, and so, it always happens like that. Like it's right. nev- it rarely happens like, okay, I'll go meet with a producer and tell them about the kind of music I make and then they'll hire me. Like <laughs> right. it just, they're going to hire their friend. Are you playing in all, are you playing, like, do you have a band or, like, any, like... I Yeah, I, I've recently been playing again. When I first moved here, I got in another band that was based in New York mm-hmm. and ended up spending the first year that I was here, lots of it I spent on the road with that band. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually a woman named Marnie Stern was mm-hmm. the artist, and she's now the guitar player on the Seth Meyers show. Oh, cool. Um but that was really fun. Yeah. Um, but then after that, I kind of was burnt out mm-hmm. on touring and being in bands, and I just wanted to figure out what I wanted to do next. Right, right. Now I've been... It, what really kind of revitalized it is I started doing this podcast about drummers, and it was a creative way to kind of interact with other people. And after doing that for a couple of years, it made me want to play drums again. Oh, cool. So I've been playing with these great musicians recently mm-hmm. and then I'm writing my own album as well cool. uh, yeah but like do you play classical percussion or, or? I mean um, I am definitely not I don't have legit training really yeah but I do get some kind of new music gigs mm-hmm. uh, there's a uh, there's a new music group out of New York that hires me mm-hmm. and they come here and do stage performances and yeah. so I have to get the music before everybody else and like right. put in the work Prepare, so that I yeah. can do it. But then it's great because I'm working with these great, legit, trained percussionists and I learned so much from them. That's cool, yeah. Um, and it's awesome. What's the name of that group? It's called Wordless Music. Um, one of my friends that I met in Los Angeles when I was on tour 
is a music supervisor at NBC Universal, mm-hmm. and that's the company that produces Master of None, even though it's on Netflix. Netflix, yeah. So she was able to at least get her foot in the door when it came time when they were searching for a composer for that show. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they went out to like 50 people or whatever, mm-hmm. but for some reason the guys liked what we sent and then it kind of went through this three-stage process where they narrowed it down and narrowed it down some more and then we finally got the gig cool um and you know before they hired us aziz called me and this is another weird coincidence that happened Mm -hmm. but he's like oh man you were in parts and labor oh i used to work for one of your bandmates when i was in college like wow so it was just like it's like I feel like I don't know if I don't know necessarily believe in like some sort of universal order, but right, right. it almost felt like felt that. Like, yeah, it was sure. like, okay, I played in this band that I really cared about, and it never yielded any money or anything like that. But right. it was something that creatively I wanted to do, and it just it worked All out down the end. Yeah. yeah, cool. And so I'm curious, just to like, so for a show like that, like how many episodes was that? That was ten episodes. Yeah. Um, and so for that score, like I've actually I've seen that show, but I don't really particularly remember. Like, were you writing songs or like incidental music or what? Yeah, were you- uh, that show. To be honest, that show ended up being largely uh, song driven. Mm-hmm. So they had a great budget, which is unlike any other project we've worked on. In the sense that if they wanted to license a song, they could just license a song. Oh, cool. Usually, yeah. what'll happen is we'll go in and the editor and the producers have cut in a bunch of songs but they can only afford a couple of them and Mm -hmm. then we have to figure out how to replace those and then it's a process of figuring out okay what about these songs is kind of advancing the scene in a way that you guys like and how can we uh replicate that function without ripping off the song in any way you know like how can we do something unique to this show but also maintain the mood that you're going for Mm. but in this case uh, you know, the, sh- the show had a great music supervisor and he picked all these cool tracks that um, they licensed. And yeah. so we were basically filling in spaces where they needed score. Right. Um, gotcha. And that's how it worked. Cool. Are you, is that, um, are you guys doing the second? Is that, is there a new one? Coming? I hope so. Yeah. Uh, those guys are in Italy right now shooting okay. it. So I don't think they'll call us for a little while right. until it goes into post-production. I hope that they bring us back. Yeah, I have to, I just saw it, like, I haven't heard it. I just, on the drive here, I just saw, like, a giant billboard for it, and I was like, oh, look at that. Yeah, the reason there's billboards now is because they're up for a bunch of Emmys. Oh, okay. So cool. that's how it works here in yeah. L.A. They, people promote their shows to each other. Like, the billboard <laughs> is for, that billboard is up so that Emmy voters will see it. Right. <laughs> it's so funny, man, because, like, this is, yeah, I haven't really... It's my first time in L.A., and, like, you know, I spend all my time in the Northeast, so, like, Boston and New York City, and, like, there's definitely... Like, these just random billboards of, like, Keith or Sutherland's got a show. It's, like, just weird. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's just... It, you know, I come from Milwaukee where they made beer, and yeah. here they make movies and TV shows. Yeah. It's a factory. <laughs> all right. That's a great place to end. Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to do this, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
This episode was produced and edited by me, Andrew Jones. The theme song was a collaboration between Matt Pendergast and myself. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe in the podcast app and leave a review. Also, please consider making a donation to this podcast on our homepage at www.andrewhalljones.com. You'll see a link for A Musician's Life. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please email me at amusiciansLifePodcast at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at MusiciansLifePod. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening, and remember, time with music is time well spent.